You are back with the conversation. This is Catherine Cruz. You know, as if 2020 wasn't already stressful enough with this health crisis, the sudden rift between Honolulu's mayor and the Honolulu Authority for Rapid Transportation over the rail project is adding to our economic turmoil. This morning, we talked to Andrew Robbins, CEO of Heart, about the disagreement over the private-public partnership and fear that the uh, bids have come in too high. What we're talking about now is looking at a phased approach to implementing the full project. So we're still we're still focused on building out the full project uh, to Alamoana Center, the full 20 miles, 21 stations, which is the subject of the full funding grant agreement with the uh, federal government. Um, but based on uh, availability of funding, uh, we're looking at a phasing plan now. And there's different permutations of how we may phase the project, and that's what we're analyzing right now. So have you talked to FDA officials about this? We have discussed it uh, uh, briefly, preliminarily. Um, They're waiting for a fuller analysis, which we are working on at this time. And uh, certainly we'll we'll be conferring with the city and county of Honolulu, uh, the administration, and um, go in together, I'm sure, to make a presentation to the FTA. How soon will that come? Uh, I see that happening um, uh, in the November time frame, probably uh, by the middle of November. There are concerns by the council about funding situation. You know, there are calls for, you know, special meetings. How do you see the timeline playing out here? Well, I imagine us making a presentation to the city council as well as to the heart board which will come first uh, likely the heart board uh, that's our governance body so that, that would seem to make the most sense and so I know before the council you had some explaining to do about the situation with undergrounding the utilities on Dillingham there I mean we were we were doing pretty well you know you folks were trying to speed things up uh, during the shutdown but you haven't been able to get the variances and the city directors that I heard you know say that you know we need the design plans back in uh, the early part of the year before COVID seems like a long time ago we uh, had uh, worked on a uh, go faster plan and uh, Put that into place on the first part of Dillingham Boulevard, uh, past Middle Street up to Mokawea Street, and that involved uh, reducing uh, traffic down to one lane in each direction, and also working uh, essentially around the clock, and that was producing good results. We, our contractor, was starting to move faster, putting the trench and uh, trenching in that we need, and uh, other other work related to the utility relocation, and we had fully expected to continue that process. Uh, further down Dillingham Boulevard, uh, especially starting in April. But as you mentioned, and as I uh, briefed the council on, uh, you know, it became apparent that there were concerns being raised by the various city directors uh, about the spacing uh, in terms of how close we would come to other underground utilities that were already, of course, underground, such as water and sewer and uh, various other utilities. So that became a major concern. The designs were very well advanced, but um, the city directors wanted to see that uh, progress all the way to 100%, which really involved a lot of consultations with all the various uh, stakeholders. We have at least 12 different stakeholders uh, in regard to all these different utilities. And what we found is when you uh, attempt to space out uh, the utilities and allow for maintenance needs and things like that, that we're just really running out of room especially when you consider we have to put all those high-voltage lines underground as well. There's not much wiggle room, you know, and we're talking 
right, the sewer pipes and the water pipes, large uh, 42-inch mains here. That's correct. And, uh, you know, each one has their concerns because, as we know, sometimes these uh, services break and fail and they have to be repaired. And, of course, the rail will be in place for more than 75 years, probably 100 years. And uh, sooner or later, these other services will have to be replaced. So, so those were the concerns, and our original basis of design was to minimize the amount of property that we take because the road space alone is not sufficient. But we've now found that there are certain choke points that we're likely to have to acquire just a little bit more right away to space these utilities out. There have been uh, groups across the community that have been re- renewing the calls to build rail to Chinatown and downtown or stop at Middle Street if we can't afford to build it all the way to Ala Moana. Mayor Caldwell, I know, is adamant. He says, look, there's not enough room if you stop at Chinatown, you know, for parking, et cetera. And he's just, he, you know, is a proponent for completing it. So so what do you say to the folks that want to stop it at Middle or Chinatown? Well, I would say that uh, I think the, or, the original commitment was to, to build the build a 20-mile system with 21 stations. And uh, certainly uh, the folks out west, uh, you know, who have been suffering in traffic all these years or have been looking forward to a rail system that takes them, you know, as far into town as possible. And, and the commitment had been Alamoana Center in this first phase and eventually on to UH Manoa. That's really the locally preferred alternative that was approved by the city council several years ago. You know, that's our mandate at heart to build that out. We do have the reality of the funding situation, so I think that's why we're doing a detailed analysis on how to phase the project. And I know the mayor talked about it as well, and I agree with him that we should consider building the entire system out to Almohana, and uh, if we have to phase it, we'll phase it, and that's what we're looking at right now. So it's not deferring, it's not stopping short, but it's a, it's a phased approach based on the funding that that is available at this time and perhaps in the future. You know, we know you're bound by, you know, procurement law and the confidentiality, you know, in this private-public partnership phase. Uh, and I know the mayor has limited information, and he's relying on on his folks uh, when he has made, you know, this decision to talk about this divorce. <laughs> I guess, you know, if, if we're, you know, on Ohana, you don't want to see, you know, your parents break up. You want to see us pull together during this really difficult time, uh, which has been compounded with COVID, you know. So is there a way forward? I mean, I know you're going to be dealing with a new mayor here uh, at the beginning of the year, but any way to reconcile the relationship here? Oh, absolutely. I, you know, I don't think that divorce is the right characterization. We, we certainly have a difference of opinion as far as the uh, procurement goes. We were quite uh, surprised, if you will, or uh, disappointed is probably the better word that the city would withdraw at the at the point they did. Uh, and, you know, we, we would have uh, expected the, the city to rely on the hard experts uh, who were on the evaluation committee and, and really look at their recommendation, especially in regard to the construction aspects of the procurement. So that's been my position is that, you know, we need to be a bit more deliberative before we just terminate a procurement that's been going on nearly two years. And I don't think uh, folks realize how fortunate we are really in this environment to have solid, multiple proposers that uh, stayed with us for nearly two years, uh, spent a lot of time and money and committed uh, uh, top-notch expertise to our project. Uh, You know, my colleagues in the industry and other places are telling me 
how fortunate we were to get multiple bidders of that quality that we have. So I didn't want to make a, a quick decision uh, simply because the city did to withdraw um, and instead be more deliberate, um, get into what's called post-proposal um, meetings, which is uh, permitted under the White Procurement Code. So normally the process would be that you receive proposals and you can get into these um, meetings uh, following the submittal of proposals and potentially go to what's called the best of final offer. And this is the way that we've carried out our major procurements in the past. Um, the city has as well, uh, on the, even on this project back in uh, 2009, 2010. So to be kind of stopped short um, and cancel a procurement is not is not in the best interest of taxpayers, in my view. So we're going to go through the process as far as we can, realizing that there are time pressures, and uh, make a recommendation uh, to our board and uh, to the city as well and see if they'll come back in. And, of course, if, if that's not to be, then we have been getting ready with, with a re-procurement. We have documents ready, and we'll, we'll, if that's the case, we will have no choice to but to go out for re-procurement. And because the price tag is, you know, looming and pushing toward $10 billion, I mean, do you see a way forward where we might have to ask that we get the uh, excise tax, you know, to help shore up the funding, go back to the lawmakers over at the state? Well, that's a conversation that, that we will certainly have to have with our elected officials and our policymakers. I'm not going to prejudge how that may go right now, but in terms of any additional funding that may be needed, I'm sure there'll be a local discussion because in the past, that's how the situation was resolved, you know, at a local level um, between uh, the city and, and the state and uh, all the policymakers and elected officials here. That was Hart CEO Andrew Robbins explaining the effort to complete rail in phases if the Triple P, the private-public partnership, fails to materialize. He says uh, the first 10 miles of rail uh, should be on track to open from Kapolei to the Aloha Stadium early next year, and then the next five miles to the airport is slated for 2023, and that will represent 75% of the project. Stay tuned. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Ekahi Health, Ulupono Initiative, and The Hub Coworking Hawaii. Have you heard of Masni? Well, it's a real thing. And in this year of adapting to COVID-19, we've had to get used to washing or sanitizing our hands and wearing masks. Well, this practice has caused some skin problems for many people. We reached out to Kaiser Permanente's Chief of Dermatology, Dr. Teresa DeVere, to find out more. Healthcare workers are a big part of it, but also, you know, some of the students who are now back in school are having to, and teachers both who are having to wear uh, masks quite a bit or people working in an office with other people and they just have to wear the mask all day. What kinds of things are, are, are you seeing and hearing about? There's people who are getting acne basically around the areas of the mask and then there's also other skin conditions that are exacerbated by wearing a mask, things like eczema, also rosacea and seborrheic dermatitis. So there's all sorts of skin conditions that are actually worsened by wearing a mask. And I guess it depends on what type of mask you're wearing, right? 
Yes. So anything that doesn't breathe very well and doesn't allow for the heat release basically is going to be a problem. So polyester masks tend to be a problem or anything with heavy fabric. We find that if you're wearing a cotton mask, it tends to help. Or if you're wearing the mask that you can uh, throw away every day, so disposable masks, those are more the surgical type blue masks that uh, tend to be a little bit better for this problem. And for healthcare workers who may have the N95 mask, I mean, there's metal on the bridge of the nose. Yeah, so you can actually see a allergic contact dermatitis to the metal because it contains some nickel. And so um, sometimes they'll have to put a little bit of uh, barrier ointment under the mask to help prevent too much contact. But then that's a problem because you have to have a lot of contact with the skin to make it effective. So it really is a problem. They, they tend to have to use a cortisone cream Uh, at night to combat the dermatitis. And so what are you advising patients? So there's several things. One, One of the problems is with the friction of the mask. And the second problem is the oils and the dirt and the sweat that's Uh, trapped under the mask. So the simple things to tell the patients are that they need to be sure to wash their face before and after they wear the mask. They want to wash with something very gentle. So we ask them to use a non-soap cleanser. Soap tends to be particularly drying. Non-soap cleansers are far less drying. And then after they wash their face, Moisturizer is very important to create that uh, moisture barrier, and so we want to use something that's non-comedogenic, so something that does not uh, clog the pores. And also we tell them not to wear makeup. Makeup can also be a problem under the mask as far as clogging pores. Uh, If people really want to wear something to uh, disguise areas around the mask, we can, you know, they can put makeup on around the mask, or if they want to just use a tinted moisturizer all over their face, that would be another option. And then lastly, it's important to wash the mask if it's a washable mask uh, after every use. What about the people who might have some sensitivity to hand sanitizer? Because we saw the warnings that the federal government came out with saying some of this stuff is dangerous because. Uh, of the chemicals that are in there, you know, it's stuff that's not supposed to be in there. Yes, so it's important to, first of all, to have enough ethyl alcohol in there to actually kill the bacteria. So generally, it has to be at least 60% ethyl alcohol. And then you want to be sure that it's a reputable brand. (laughs) And generally, it can be, we've seen a lot of worsening hand eczema, hand dermatitis is the other term, because people are washing their hands and using so much more of these hand sanitizers. So what we tell people is that after they wash their hands, it's important to use a hand moisturizer. So generally, the thicker the moisturizer, the better. Uh, It's going to be more protective against dermatitis and drying of the skin. So would that be like that lotion that that doesn't clog your pores, that kind of thing, or a a Vaseline, or I don't know? Yeah, so good point. So basically it's almost the opposite of what you're putting on your face. So the facial moisturizers are going to be relatively thin lotions, whereas on the hands it's going to be something thicker. Vaseline is one of the best moisturizers to prevent hand dermatitis, but a lot of people really don't like using it because it's so greasy and then they can't 
you know, do whatever they're doing on their computer or with papers. And so um, generally it's going to be a cream. A cream, the first ingredient is oil, but it also has all sorts of other ingredients to make it more um, palatable. So basically it's something like it will usually say hand cream on it, and that's one of the better products to use for the hands. But when you do put that moisturizer on, I mean, aren't germs more likely to cling to your hands after you put something on it? I mean, you've just spent all, you know, this time, the 20, 20 seconds washing your hands to, uh, you know, to, to, to get those germs and, and, uh, and to break that protein, right, that, that connects to your Right, exactly. Fingers. And actually, it's, you know, you want, you want it to dry a little bit. So you put it on your hands and you allow it to dry. But also it's acting as a protective barrier against all those little micro uh, breaks in your skin. So it's actually a little bit better to have that protective barrier on. But you don't want to touch your face with your hands. So, uh, you know, having a mask on is helpful, too, to prevent uh, transfer of germs. Anything else as far as just COVID and, and skin issues? Let's see. As far as treatment of mask me, uh, I didn't really go over that yet. There's a couple over-the-counter products that we recommend. One is benzoyl peroxide and the other is a salicylic acid uh, product. Those are both readily available. You don't want to put those on in the morning because the mask is going to occlude those products and uh, make them more irritating to the skin. So you actually want to put them on in the evening. Also, benzoyl peroxide tends to bleach fabrics, so you could end up bleaching your mask. What else? We see a lot of lip dermatitis for the same reasons. You're trapping moisture under the mask and it's creating an irritant environment to the lips. So usually they're putting Vaseline jelly or Aquaphor healing ointment on the lips will really help uh, prevent problems with lip dermatitis from the mask. It's like, oh my gosh, if it's not one thing, it's another. I know. The, oh, the other problem is that a lot of people can't use their normal kind of anti-aging products when they're wearing a mask a lot because of the topical retinoids, uh, vitamin A type products, vitamin C products, they also can be uh, cause dryness and irritation to the skin. So sometimes they have to step back from those products if they're going to be wearing masks a lot. Okay, but then hopefully this mask wearing will be temporary. We'll, we'll get through this. <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> But the good news is that the mask acts as really good sun protection, so that's one positive. Okay, well, you're going to get a little funny suntan line. <laughs> that's true, so wear your sunscreen no matter what. <laughs> okay, all right. Uh, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I think this will help our listeners, though. Oh, you're welcome. That was Dr. Teresa DeVere, Chief of Dermatology at Kaiser Permanente here in Hawaii. She was talking about the skin problems that have emerged due to masks and hand sanitizer. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, presenting Hokusai's Mount Fuji, featuring the Ukiyo-e print series, 36 views of Mount Fuji displayed one at a time. HonoluluMuseum.org. Joining us for today's Reality Check is Civil Beat Editor Chad Blair. Good morning, Chad. Good morning, Catherine, and happy Aloha Friday. Yes, aren't you glad it's the end of the week? Yes, I, I am. I think a lot of us are. Yes. 
So today we're going to be talking about what? The plan to roll out vaccines? Right. So this is from Eleni Gil Avendano. She's been covering COVID for us uh, more than any other reporter. She's our health reporter. Gosh, we're now in going almost eight months now. But yeah, you know, last week she actually reported on how there is a plan from the state uh, submitted to the federal government on how to distribute the vaccine for COVID-19 when that becomes available. Well, there, there weren't many details uh, at that time, and they only told us a few things, mainly about the concerns about how they're going to roll this out. We're now hearing from Eleni's reporting that the Department of Health uh, we'll be sharing publicly in a few weeks more details. But I can tell you some of the stuff that is coming out is, well, who's going to get the vaccine first, right? That's something we all are wondering. And no surprise, uh, health workers, people in hospitals, first responders are right there at the top of the list. But so are our most vulnerable members of the population, elderly people, people with serious health conditions that could put them at risk. So so they are mapping out when that vaccine becomes available, who's going to get it first. Yeah, you know, and I, I was just wondering, too, it's like, uh, you know, as far as the military, I imagine they're going to get their special batch as well. Yeah, exactly. For the rest of us, um, after those first two groups are accommodated, uh, we're looking at teachers, uh, other people that work in the schools, uh, people who live and, and work in homeless shelters, and also correctional facilities. Of course, as we know, there have been outbreaks, uh, particularly OCCC, but also on the Big Island. And then fourth up is the keiki, the kids uh, and those people up to 22 years of age, young adults. And then it's the rest of us, Catherine, that, <laughs> that are uh, in line uh, to get vaccinated. Uh, Governor Ige did say at a press conference yesterday, you know, the best scenario is that we might see it sometime a couple months from now, perhaps more likely this summer. That stuff is still being uh, decided, but that is the plan so far. And then what about uh, the shelf life of this stuff? <laughs> it, it, it is something that doesn't uh, survive for a very long time, I think about five days. So what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to not only ship it and store it, it's going to have to be on dry ice, right, uh, to keep it nice and chilled. Um, but particularly with the neighbor islands, more rural areas, that will be a challenge to get that to them. You know, part of the concern that was expressed is that the estimate's $25 million to take care of the vaccination uh, here in the state of Hawaii. Well, so far, we've only got about $800,000, a fraction of what we're going to need. So that's one of the things that that our government leaders are working on. By the way, this includes not only the Department of Health, which is the lead agency, but uh, the Attorney General's office is involved, Hawaii Emergency Management, the National Guard, and the uh, Healthcare Association of Hawaii. Well, now, um, we're going to have to have, a, I guess, a fairly large number of our population yes. vaccinated in order, you know, for us to keep the, the cases down, right? That's right. And of course, as you know, there's there's some concern among certain people in our population about uh, whether vaccinations are safe or not. But the estimate that came out from the FDA is we're going to need about 60 to 70 percent of our population here in the state. That's about, well, between 700 and 800,000 people. That is that is a heck of a lot of people. Uh, but remember, even with the vaccines um, being distributed, being taken, we're not going to be able to go back to normal life. I heard you earlier about the report on the mask. Masks are still going to be part of, of our routine going forward, even with the vaccination in place. Right. So you got to get used to that mask knee. <laughs> yes, exactly. 
<laughs> who knew? Who knew, right? We'd be dealing with this stuff in 2020. Man. Exactly. What, one other thing I should just add, uh, Josh Green, the lieutenant governor who's a medical doctor, speaking to vaccines, he happened to say, look, I've had COVID. You don't want it. Believe me. <laughs> Essentially his recommendation to get vaccinated once that's made available here in the islands. Right. And you just want to make sure that those vaccines are properly vetted and that they are safe uh, for everybody. Exactly. All right. Thanks so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. That was Chad Blair, opinion and politics editor for Honolulu Civil Beat. Head to civilbeat.org to read more about Eleni's story. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors the Kahala Hotel and Resort and PCAT, Pacific Center for Advanced Technology Training. You know, folks, today uh, we're going to be turning to our friends from the BBC with some global insights and perspectives on the upcoming U.S. presidential election. From the BBC in London, I'm Rob Hugh-Jones with Global View on 2020, a look at how the world's been discussing the U.S. presidential campaign. Coming up, how a Colombian politician got involved in the race and what China makes of President Trump's alleged Chinese bank account. But first, a lot of reaction around the world to Thursday's final debate. Indian media gave particular attention to President Trump's assertion that the air in India is filthy. The Times Now news channel says some Indians are asking why their government is supportive of Mr. Trump when he openly insults India. But others say Trump is quite right to call out the poor air quality. Other media across the world saw the final debate as more civil than the first one, but a Brazilian commentator for the news website G1 noted Trump was expecting a victory and it was a tie. Rafael Rojas works for BBC Monitoring in Miami watching the Latin American media. He says one thing he's noticed is how President Trump is claiming Joe Biden would be soft on socialism in Latin America. It's been interesting to see how uh, that messaging about a threat of communism reaching the U.S. has been playing out mostly here in the U.S. and not so much in Latin America. We see a lot of uh, media commentators warning that these are fearmonger tactics, that these uh, issues are not really reflecting what's going on in the region. But it has gained traction here in the U.S., particularly if you take into account the Cuban and the Venezuelan and nationals who live here, who vote here, and who have seen the effects of a socialist-ruled uh, country in their own lifetimes. Well, Rafael, you yourself come from Colombia, so what's the media there saying? It's been interesting because uh, Colombia, which is a big, big partner with the U.S. in regards to the uh, fight against drugs, a lot of the campaign rhetoric has gone into saying that Colombia would not receive as much support with a Biden presidency as it has with a Trump presidency. And the president himself has tried to woo Colombian voters here in the U.S. going back to the same threat of communism. The president has even engaged in some uh, Twitter bouts with Colombian politicians such as left-wing leader Gustavo Petro, who in a tweet actually went as far as saying that if he could vote in the U.S. election, he would vote for Joe Biden. The president has used that statement 
to say that that is evidence that Gustavo Petro, someone who was a former guerrilla rebel, who has been accused of having close ties with the Venezuelan government, that there is a socialist and communist and Castro-Chavista element to the election that is trying to take hold in the U.S. Rafael Rojas of BBC Monitoring. Next, to China's reaction to the New York Times report that President Trump has allegedly paid more in taxes to the Chinese government than to the U.S. The Trump Organization has disputed that report, saying it was full of speculation. The BBC's Kerry Allen follows Chinese social media. Donald Trump's tax payments to China have delighted and bemused social media users, and they've been closely following reports scrutinizing his tax affairs. There are memes and comments referring to Comrade Trump and Chuan Jianguo or Building the Nation Trump, and these are all over the popular Sina Weibo social network. Users are joking that he has finally been exposed as an undercover Chinese agent. One user says he's been paying his Communist Party membership and the motherland will never forget his contributions. That's some of what the world's been saying about the US campaign. I'm Rob Jones at the BBC. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Kahala Hotel and Resort on Oahu, announcing the reopening of their restaurants, welcoming Kama'aina back to Hoku's, the Veranda, and Plumeria Beach House. Reservations at kahalaresort.com. For the past week, there's been a call to action in memory of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. People are being asked to lay flower tributes to the downtown capital district and take action on 27 points representing the 27 years that the Associate Justice served on the High Court. Today we're rebroadcasting part of an interview we did with John Gotanda following the death of the Supreme Court Justice in September. He's the president of Hawaii Pacific University. He clerked for Ginsburg and shares his memories of her. My legal career began with Justice Ginsburg. Literally, she swore me into the Hawaii Bar, probably the only person to be sworn in by her as a member of Hawaii Bar. And it all started because She hired me as a staff attorney for the D.C. Circuit when she was a judge on that court. And it's actually a funny story how that came about, because I was in my third year of law school and wanted to do a clerkship after graduation, and I managed to get interviews in Pennsylvania, New York, and Washington, D.C. So I went to get my haircut in Hawaii, you know, going to the East Coast. And so I went to my hair stylist, actually my mother's hair, hair cutter. And I said, I'm going to on interviews. And he heard I was going to New York. So he said, I have to give you a New York haircut. And I said, uh, no, I'm going to go and interview with these judges. I just need a professional-looking, normal, clean-cut haircut. He would hear nothing of it. And so he whisked me away from the mirror, cut, 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 voila. You know, I came out with a haircut suitable to go clubbing uh, oh, in no. New York, where the front was fine, but the back had three levels of hair. And it looked like he put a bowl over my head and and at the edge kind of shaved the back. Uh, It was totally inappropriate for an interview. So I was horrified. You know, what what was I going to do? But my plan was to walk into the interviews with these judges in their chambers and then kind of back my way out, bowing my way out maybe. Uh, my, My plan with then Judge Ginsburg failed because she invited another judge to the interview because it was uh, for a position with the Hope Court. And so they each sat on a side of me, and they could clearly see that, that my hair in the back was off. Uh, there was no hiding, in other words, this haircut. But, you know, RBG, she never she never gave a hint of noticing. And well, when it came to the law, she was all about substance. She grilled me for the entire interview. And in the end, the haircut never came up. It didn't matter. I got the job, and it literally 
changed my career path in the end. So she didn't hold that bad haircut against you? No, no. She's a very stylish person. <laughs> but that was not a, a professional haircut for a job interview. But again, she, she focused and has a laser focus when it comes to the law as to talking about substance, talking about types of things that really were important to her. I really learned a lot from working two years at the D.C. Circuit. You know, knowing that you had this relationship early on in your professional career with this woman who would, you know, really become this icon there on the Supreme Court, on the high court, what was it like when you heard the news? Oh, it was was devastating. She had played such an important role. She not only gave me my first job, but she was the reference for me twice and helped really launch my second, third careers. When I applied to be a lawyer at the law firm of Covington and Burling and one of the nation's leading law firms, she served as my reference for that. And then when I applied to be a law professor a number of years later, I think it was like four years or five years later, she again graciously agreed to be a reference. And at that point, she had been put on the Supreme Court. You know, she took the time out, though, to be a reference for me. And it allowed me, really, it opened so many doors for me to have Justice Ginsburg serve as a reference. And and really, the news of her passing really was a tremendous blow. She was just a truly amazing person. And I know there's lots of talk about her replacement and her dying wish to have the next president select the next justice. First and foremost, she's irreplaceable. She really was just a a truly incredible, brilliant lawyer. The the sharpest mind, uh, legal mind I've ever worked with, by far, I think, the most gifted, incredibly demanding perfectionist. You can see it in her work that she put in the time and care and thought. I think she's irreplaceable. I, I don't think anyone you know, will ever be able to, to truly replace Justice Ginsburg. She really was a one of a kind in the end. I was struck by the images that I saw in the news, flowers and the tributes that were being placed outside the Supreme Court. You had women who were bringing their daughters there just to acknowledge you know, what she's done for women's rights. And she really lived an amazing life, made a difference in the lives of so many people. But yet, you know, there was a, a real human side to her, too. You know, she was very careful about her words, very thoughtful. But yet, there was one opportunity I had to argue a case before the, the D.C. Circuit and a panel that included Justice Ginsburg. And I was appointed by the court. They actually asked me to, to do that. And I had done it on another occasion, too. But this panel went out of their way, and I think it, it was because of, of Justice Ginsburg, not only to grow me and keep me up there for twice the amount of time that was allotted, but then afterward, you know, they not only gave me the experience there of, of a lifetime, but, but in footnote, they dropped a thanks for doing this and an acknowledgement of the work that I did on, on the case, even though I, I lost in the end. And I think what that shows is that she would go out of her way to, um, when someone does something, to acknowledge the fact that it's important and, and the recognition. You know, she, she took time to recognize others for their contributions, too, in which I think really is, is just extraordinary that someone for stature and this is so busy and, and doing so many things would take the time out to do those types of things. It really is 
illustrative of the type of person she was. In her later years, I know she would come to visit here in the islands, really made time for the young lawyers at the law school. Yes, and I, I think she really did have a fondness for Hawaii. And, you know, I, I did speak with her on a number of occasions about Hawaii. And I also remember afterward receiving a nice note from her, which I actually have framed after I had left the court. I had sent her some macadamia nuts and coffee, and she was saying how much she loved the macadamia nuts, and she was drinking the coffee and really enjoying the Kona coffee. So I, I do think that she really did have a fondness for Hawaii in the end. I guess the fact that she was such an inspiration for so Mm -hmm. many young legal minds, you know, and and when you were at Villanova as the law dean, I'm sure you, you know, you saw just how important that is uh, to encourage those that are uh, getting into this profession. Yes. And I also saw it, too, when she once invited me, she was in the area, invited me to go and see her speak at the University of Pennsylvania, where Justice O'Connor was also on that panel. And it, it was amazing the, the impact, you could just see it in the audience that she had and that just O'Connor had, too, on, on the people. They were trailblazers, pioneers, you know, in, in what they did. She was just a, a one-of-a-kind, just an amazing, amazing person. She did so much for me. I wouldn't be here where I am today if it, it wasn't for Justice Ginsburg. That was HPU President John Gotanda sharing memories of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. A candlelight ceremony to honor her legacy will be held Saturday from 6.30 to 7 p.m. at the state capitol. And the public is encouraged to take part in a drive-by flower and lay drop at the YWCA in downtown Honolulu. Well, that's it for the conversation. Now back over to Pledge Central with Dabney and Derek.